Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Good evening, everybody. Warm welcome to Merrick's for another round of our China dispute. This time on 70 years of PRC, can the party deliver its China dream? Thank you all very much for coming. Good to see that there is a strong interest in 70th anniversaries. I heard not only obviously on a personal level, but also、uh, when it comes to a country which is so important, so influential, also so complex as the People's Republic of China. And I found the motto, the People's Daily. Picked for this 70th anniversary, quite telling, and also an interesting scene setter for our evening. They use for their so to say special online page the motto "Glorious 70 Years、um, Struggle of the New Era." Zhuangli Seventy Years Fighting the New Era. Which is an interesting motto for a celebration, right? Especially looking ahead, terming the new era of Xi Jinping, obviously as a struggle. And I would like to take that、uh, as an opportunity, also for all of us to reflect、uh, on the more glorious aspects of 70 years of the PRC, People's Republic of China, but of course also on the not so glorious. Aspects. We will looking. We will look back. We will assess the current situation, and of course, we also would spend quite some time to look ahead、uh, concerning the future of the People's Republic of China and how this also, as we always do at Merit, impacts us here in Germany and in Europe. And I think it's particularly important for me personally, but I think for all of us who care about China, that this is not only about the CCP. Because China is so much more than the CCP, it's the celebration for the People's Republic of China. So the nation-state and, of course, also the people should have a very prominent role, and they also will have during this、um, evening. We will, as always, have distinguished panelists,、uh, and we will venture into the panel discussion in a bit. But I would like to kick off this evening. With a short interview, so to say, because we have,、um, uh, thanks to our publications and communications team, and of course also thanks to the authors, a timely publication which just came out yesterday, and one of the authors is with us this evening.、Uh, and I would like to take this opportunity really to to help us to set the scene for this evening to talk briefly. And I would like to call you on stage now,、uh, Nis Greenberg, who is one of the main authors of this、um, publication. You find some. Some of them、um, across the room, and you can always as,、uh, download them on the Merrick's、uh, website. And this research focuses very much on elite politics, on ideology, and on state party integration from an economic lens, but also from a political lens.、Um, this helps us to understand the state,、uh, the role of the state in the People's Republic of China, because. We might assume that the party, of course, has always ruled over everything and wants to rule over everything even more. But what has been the role of the state, particularly in the People's Republic? I think the state has a, a very ambiguous role in the Chinese history to play. So,、uh, under Mao, he was deeply concerned with the state. He saw it as a dangerous thing, and 
he wanted the revolutionary forces of the party to kind of replace the state apparatus, right? He said, bombard the headquarters, uh, and um, he was not a fan of, of strong institutions outside the party. Um, Deng Xiaoping, uh, the opening up and reform period, uh, they learned the lesson from the uh, from the, the Maoist period, and they uh, did the other way. They wanted to. They saw the need for strong institutions, for a, a working administration, a professional state apparatus, uh, to support the party. Uh, and I think Xi Jinping now uh, is trying to get the best of both worlds. Uh, he wants a strong leading party in charge of, firmly in charge of all political process, uh, but he also sees the need for an efficient um, administrative uh, toolbox for the party to, you know, do the governance. Do you think this is a kind of a move out of strength or rather a move out of weakness, sending that they or he personally maybe needs some additional support uh, in the sense of not being the only one responsible or not the party being the only one responsible for uh, the, the future and the current, so to say, policies of China? I think that's a very hard question from um, uh, looking at the, uh, the politics of it. I think, I think it's hard uh, if you say... Uh, it's hard to argue um, the case that only by looking at they are show, trying to show force. That is not an argument for me uh, sufficiently uh, for arguing that they are actually weak just because they try to look strong. I think, of course, uh, there is something to it. And, uh, you know, the force by which he's trying to really drive his own or this one particular political project th uh, throughout the system is also telling uh, that there are different projects at work and people are not all of the same opinion. But um, it's difficult to say because there's so little coming out of, uh, of China, uh, at least from this top level, uh, from the political level. Also, this has been just a recent development, right, starting last year, kind of getting more and more finalized or more concrete. But what does that mean, or how much do we know what this party-state integration, this quest by Xi Jinping to really incorporate the state more, mean for cadres on a very practical level? Does that take away some authorities from the state institutions? Do they have to report more to the party secretaries? What do we know about how does it really change policymaking in China? I think there are basically two main stories here. The one is that the, the politics of or party politics, uh, the Xi Jinping state project, is really uh, taking the main role here. So there's a lot of ideological training. Ideology, ideology in general has really been ramped up. Uh, so there's a lot of training and uh, you know study sessions, even for top level cadres. They have to, they also have to read all these documents and you know get into the narrative and and uh, know the message. Everybody has to be on cue. On the other side, there is also this restructuring going on, which is a regular thing. So um, there is actually, as I said before, he wants the best of both worlds, right? He wants everybody to be on his cue. The political agenda has, be, has to be set by him. Um, but on the other hand, there's also meaningful restructuring and, and efficiency uh, kind of um, streamlining of the administration. So I, I think it, it, there's, there's something for both uh, to take. You know, the government is getting a little bit better, but it is all the hegemonic party that is uh, supposed to control it. So not only waste of time in study sessions, but also really streamlining competencies and might be eventually getting even easier uh, for, for um, actors in China to get things done or to get policies really implemented. This is what I now get from you. I think the balance is, uh, is really uh, what we don't know yet about. I think there's a lot of waste uh, of time because of these training sessions and the, the constant rollout of new regulations. 
Uh, I think there's 180 new party regulations that have come out uh, under Xi Jinping. The, 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 the immensity of document research uh, or document study that every uh, you know, administrator and, and party person has to do is, is immense. But um, I, th I think the balance here is really on the, is maybe it slipped a bit too much to the political side. So do you expect any resistance against this? I mean, if there is the chance at all to to voice any resistance, maybe by non-cooperation, not you know implementing these new regulations. Do you expect any frictions coming into the system due to this new policy or this new approach? There are some very faint signs that there is resistance. So there were there was a conference a couple of weeks ago where province-level uh, leaders were meeting in Beijing, and they complained about the lack of, uh, of freedom to implement policy and adjust policies that doesn't really make sense uh, to the local, uh, you know, to, to their constituency. And they, they voiced this concern that, you know, the, the steering from Beijing was too heavy-handed. Um, and that was actually, it was um, reported by, by People's Daily. So to me, that shows that there is, a con you know, there's, bigger concerns, and there are actually people who, who think it has been uh, taken too far, this kind of top-level control. A final question to Eunice. What does it mean for us here as China watchers, maybe not so much, but maybe also, but for people who really deal with China on a day-to-day -day basis, for policymakers, for, for the corporate sector? Can we already say something, what this might mean for us? Yeah, is it a good news or is it bad news, basically? Uh, I don't know, good or bad, but I think it's pretty sure that Xi Jinping uh, or the project ongoing right now is to really build state capacity uh, and to build state capacity that is firmly controlled by the party. So we have to deal with the fact that the party is getting better and smarter uh, in, in governing uh, for, the, for the good and for the worse. Um, and as in official relations, business relations, um, the party and the ideological parts of, you know, of China will have a, a more, I think, a stronger role to play also in the future. So slightly, uh, it's complicated. This is what I get from your, from your answer. Um, thank you so much, Nis, for guiding us into uh, the main findings of the publications. And if you have time and interest concerning um, especially how party-state relations are supposed to work, yeah. Have, feel free to have a deeper look into the publications. Thank you very much, Nis, you. and you will be with us in the audience also to answer questions. Yeah. Now I would like to call the panelists on stage with me, and it's Sarah Eaton, Christian Goebel, Andreas Mulvard, and Frank Pieker. And free seating, feel free to sit anywhere to my left. Yeah, now we're actually going to talk about the party of the party, so to say, right? I just, it's a pun, of course, also the party celebration of the CCP. And we have, um, as I already said, uh, four renowned experts for distinguished panelists, which I would like to introduce to you. Next to me on my left is Sarah Eaton. She is currently a professor of modern Chinese society and economy and also the director of the Center for Modern East Asian Studies at the University of Göttingen, but will transfer to Humboldt University here in Berlin from October 1st, taking up a professorship for transregional China studies. Um, and Sarah brings, uh, focuses on the political economy, um, and she brings a, a, quite a strong economic lens through this whole topic. She worked extensively on industrial policy, on enterprise reform, 
and recently also started to look into environmental policy uh, making, but really brings a strong um, expertise on uh, social, also social state-owned enterprises and uh, industrial policy in China. So great, Sarah, to be with us tonight. Then we do have Andreas, and I asked you a couple of times how to pronounce your name, Muller, Mulva, kind of uh, hopefully close to <laughs> how it should be. He's an assistant professor at the Copenhagen Business School, and Andreas focuses very much on ideology in China. He looked deeply into different lines of thinking, debates within the wider Chinese elite, also in terms of how much they argue for liberalism, for socialism. He's also very much interested in the whole um, relationship, also on, on an ideational level, on a debate level between um, capitalism and democracy, so he really tracked um, over several years, actually, different positions of leading intellectuals, and recently looked more into what you call Xiism, so the ideology of uh, Xi Jinping. So great to have you with us, Andreas. Then we have next to him Christian Goebel, who is a university professor at um, the University of Vienna, also for modern China studies, um, and Christian brings, uh, also studies political economy like Sarah, but brings her a very strong political lens. Um, he looked specifically also how the Chinese party state adapts to economic and social changes in China. And Christian started very much on ground. We know each other for quite some time. He did extensive field work also in the rural areas of China. A lot of stories to tell from this experience. And recently, because it also became much more difficult to get access to to on-the-ground information, really worked himself into data analysis, website scraping, and doing extensive work on documents and statistics in China. So, Christian. Also, thank you very much for joining us. And last but not least, um, because we are the guest Franks, that's why I decided to introduce you uh, at the very end. Frank and Pieker, of course, um, many of you or most of you, I think, have met him before, the current CEO and director of Merricks. And Frank, uh, besides having a lot of outreach work and also administrative managerial work here in Merck, still does also primary research on a lot of things, mainly on Chinese influence and um, China's relations with Europe, but also on uh, the party state, looks deeply into the internal uh, setup of the Chinese CCP. He also still works on Chinese uh, migration to Europe. And Frank also brings a very, uh, very rich experience, of course, from extensive stays within China, also extensive networks with researchers and uh, professors. And he also spent 1989 in Beijing. So he really has live experience from uh, the events which happened around June 4th, which of course was one of the turning points of uh, contemporary China history. So Frank, also thank you very much for taking the time to be also on the panel, not only in the background steering us through stormy waters, but also being on the panel. So we would like to do three things. We would like to look at the present situation in China, also the um, upcoming celebrations. Then we would like to take some time to look back, but also spend quite some time to look ahead, really what is, um, not maybe 70 years ahead, but really what is what will the next 5, 10, 15 years bring for China 
and for us. And I would like to kick it off with a question to Sarah Eaton. Um, Sarah, the preparations are already in full swing. We have seen some pictures of the military parade, which is going to happen October 1st around Tiananmen Square. We have heard some news about the speech Xi Jinping is going to give. I mean, the whole city is obviously in a special state to, to get ready. What are, um, in your observation, what are key themes or messages the CCP really wants to communicate through all these events to, first of all, the domestic audience? Against the backdrop of these uh, problems that China faces in Hong Kong uh, in the, with the U.S., with growth now at 6.2%, percent, um, this is the lowest it's been since 1990, um, I think that the message the, the party will be uh, very insistent on communicating is that uh, struggle is uh, with us for now, um, but also that uh, the CCP has an illustrious history, a glorious history of overcoming struggle. So I think the party will be working hard to say, look, these are hard times, but it's not uh, the, the long march. Um, we'll get through this. I think that's a really important message. The second message that I think they'll be working very, very hard to convey uh, is that in spite of these challenges, uh, the party is still serving the people, and the party is still improving people's livelihoods, right? Um, so we know that a major um, uh, emphasis, uh, distinctive characteristic of uh, Xi Jinping's um, administration is the focus on poverty alleviation. This should be, you know, uh, the, the Chinese standard of uh, the poverty line, one living on $1.10 per day. Uh, on that measure, uh, China wants to alleviate poverty uh, in 2020, right? Um, and there have been big, big investments in making that happen. Um, second, uh, under the rubric of serving the people and improving people's livelihoods, I think the, the party will also be working hard to underscore uh, tangible improvements in air quality, for example, in, in coastal China, and the other things that um, Xi Jinping has been uh, working very, very hard at in that regard. So kind of mixed message in terms of we have done it before, so we will also kind of overcome the, the upcoming challenges. Uh, Frank Pico, looking from Europe to the celebrations, I mean, on the one inside the military parade, of course, probably sends a signal of strength, but uh, also the other things we've been talking about. What do you think? Is there a different message or does the CCP want, will spend some effort to frame a specific message also for a foreign audience, for, for us here in Europe, for example? All right. Well, that's two different questions, because there's a question for a foreign audience in general, and there's a question for Europe. And I'd like to start with the last one. I don't think there will be a special message for Europe, which is really regrettable, because in the current state of the world, Uh, the Chinese are completely focused on the United States that occupies all their attention, sucks up all their energy, and they forget, against their best intentions, quite often that actually they really have to play the field also here in Europe, and there are some real ways of making some real headway here in, in Europe if they try their best. So that is um, the European part. Um, for the foreign audience, uh, of course... This celebration is principally aimed at a domestic audience, that's quite clear, that's always the case, but of course, like the celebrations uh, that have happened many, many times already, it is an absolute requirement that the CCP shows itself at its very, very best, at its most united, and at its most representative of the whole of China and all of its interests. And any message that even deviates from that um, nanomillimeter will not be tolerated. So they will not allow anything 
to be conveyed that doesn't say we are united, we are going forward, we are speaking on behalf of China and we know best. And that is something that you can expect. I don't expect any ambiguity there. Let's put it this way. Frank, you already mentioned that, and we also saw that in the interview with NIST, that this, the CCP really wants to represent the whole nation, the whole people. Um, Christian Goebel, do you think the people are also in the mood to celebrate? Uh, do they fully support this glorious 70 years and this full-fledged celebration mood now in Beijing and across the country? That's also a very rich question. I mean, I can tell you that like, who's not in the mood to celebrate, probably? Um, people languishing in education camps in Xinjiang um, and those who are maybe about to be deported in one of these camps. Um, there is an atmosphere of fear there, so nobody there really is in, in the mood to celebrate. But also the officials that were mentioned, um, there's a lot of pressure on officials now. And um, I have the impression that for years now, they're like a bow that is tightly sort of um, stretched, you know, and it doesn't get too relaxed because... Yeah, one event sort of catches up with the other, and with every event they have to, as you said, they have to read documents. Uh, they have to sometimes, you know, hand copy documents. They have to do um, after work, um, after work work, study sessions, and so on. And um, I've had uh, local officials that I know say that they, they want to leave. Now, if they could, they would leave because um, the pressure has, has become unbearable. So for them, it's quite difficult. The general population, I think there is one of the challenges that um, is also addressed in, in, in this graph. I think most people just don't care. You know, they're, because this question presupposes that you're either happy and you're in a celebratory mood or not. But I think most people just don't care. They're pragmatic. They want to live their lives. Um, if they don't have any direct contact with the state or the party, you know, it, it just doesn't concern them. I'd guess, but I don't know, because um, information flows are, like, um, not what they used to be, that with these preparations, many people might even be annoyed because, you know, going to work becomes more difficult um, because, you know, there might be car parades of officials, um, the exercises for the marches and so on. So, yeah. Christian, you already mentioned um, Xinjiang um, as, of course, one thing that makes makes us, or may, as you said, also many people in China wonder what is, is, is that also part of the celebration or can this be just neglected in terms of all the, of course, things which are positive and the changes this, this have been, which have been clearly impressive in the last 70 years. But talking about Xinjiang, I think we also have to address another which is currently ongoing, uh, Andreas, Hong Kong. Um, how, how does that relate from your perspective to the ongoing celebrations? Um. Thank you for the invitation. It's very humbling to be invited uh, to such a distinguished panel. Um, I think Hong Kong casts a long shadow over this uh, celebration and this anniversary. Uh, and I think from an ideological perspective, what's going on in Hong Kong is an embarrassment to what I call the Shiist ideology uh, because the Shiist ideology it takes an element that has always been part of CCP ideology and emphasizes it more. And that's the idea that there's a certain Chinese civilizational essence, that there's this continuous culture of 4,000 years over which certain institutions have been developed which are right or suitable for China. And I think what the movement in Hong Kong is doing is sweeping away 
this moral authority of the CCP to decide what's Chinese and what's not Chinese. And of course you can say it's not fully Chinese, it's a mix. Hong Kong is a city that has influences from Western culture and from Chinese culture, but even so, it's a movement that goes on in Chinese uh, language. It's, um, it's clearly not uh, something that's... I mean, what the CCP is, is forced to do is to, to denounce it and say, this must have been created by foreign hostile forces because from within the ideology of the CCP, it's simply not conceivable that people who think of themselves as Chinese would want democracy. And obviously, this is... And again, this is an ideology, right? Because we have to remember it's not more than three decades ago that you had the masses in Beijing marching for the same things as the Hong Kongers are doing now. I mean, it's also in the sense it's a very good uh, lens to, if we now take some time to look back, that the, the Chinese Communist Party itself, if we look not back 70 years but 80 years, started as a movement itself, right? It was a, it was a bottom-up uh, movement and as Xi Jinping now brings up currently this phrase of um, staying true to the or staying truth to the original mission, right? I mean the question here is then if we really take this long view back now, what was the original mission seventy years ago? Um, and of course how much is this still relevant um, when we when we think about today's China. But maybe let's let's take a step back and look look back really. What if if from your point of views, and I'm addressing all of you here, um, what, what was the original mission of the Chinese Communist Party 70 years ago? Whoever wants to. Christian, you were nodding. Would you like to, to start? <laughs> I always nod. If we look back 70 years ago, um, just before the founding um, of the People's Republic of China, you know, there was um, communication was not very good. And I think one of the chief... Um, aims of the party then was to ensure coherence and you could only have this coherence if you trained people to really believe in the party and do what um, you know and, and stand for the party and I think this is what they want to revive now this spirit of um, Yan'an um, um, if you will um, so I think that's one one aspect another aspect that's um, very much connected with that is sort of um, this, you know, listening to the people. Because, I mean, it's an authoritarian system, so we very easily, you know, are tempted to say that the, the people don't matter. But from the beginning, they've at least in their ideology stretched that it is important for the Communist Party to listen to the people um, and to take care of what they call the, the small things. You know, they said you have to deal and you have to sort of solve the people's small problems and then they will follow you and help you. And I think they're going back to that now as well. Um, of course, the message and the mission of the Chinese Communist Party has always been split, almost bipolar. Because on the one hand, it's about China's greatness and resurrecting and building up China's greatness. On the other hand, it's about achieving socialist communist revolution. And the Communist Party has never thought about the inherent contradiction between these two things. Never wanted to think about that. Uh, when I started thinking about it, uh, things went awfully wrong. The cult of revolution is perhaps a good case in point. Important point is also to say that uh, contemporary China is probably Mao Zedong's worst nightmare. If he were alive now, he would brand this as utterly reactionary and exactly not what the Communist Party set out to achieve. Um, however, that is only half of that story, right? Because that is the communist side, the nationalist side, the chauvinist side, 
uh, that, of course, is now very predominant, and that plays to that, what is happening now, plays to that trope within the Communist Party. Um, so the question really is, to what extent can they then replace socialist revolution, and this is a long-term question, with continuous rule of the Communist Party? That is essentially what they've been doing. So erasing a utopia, a communist utopia, and replacing that with the continuous, everlasting rule of the party. Uh, and that is really the, 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 the overall long-term project uh, of which Xi Jinping uh, is absolutely convinced that he's going to achieve it. And he is you know, doing not a bad job, I'm afraid. But if we really take these two, as you explained it both so well, these two, so to say, original goals of that overall mission of the CCP. So China has stand up, so a nationalist, independent, respected country freed from uh, also foreign influence. And then the other, of course, part was to bring wealth, to bring development, you know, to lift people out of out of poverty and um It's probably, uh, and this is a question to you, Sarah, it's probably fair to say that looking 70 years back, of course, the CCP has done a tremendous job. Would it be a fair assessment for you saying they full-fledged succeed on the, the, the second part of the mission to bring really development and, and growth and uh, wealth to, to uh, most of the people? So I'm an academic, so I'm on, on the one hand, on the other hand person. Um, I think that there's no debate, right, that uh, when you look at the measures of, of poverty alleviation in 1981 by the World Bank measures, uh, 94% of people were living in poverty. In 2015, it's 2.4%, right? I mean, that is a remarkable achievement, um, and I think that there's no two ways about it. On the other hand, right, um, that came with uh, growing inequality, that came with uh, growth at all costs, enormous environmental consequences. Um, so those are uh, some of the... Uh, uh, China is a complex uh, case, and there's always uh, one side of the story and the other as well. But I think that it's uh, important to um, um, reiterate, you know, that um, this is... Um, that these uh, achievements in, in poverty alleviation are pretty pretty astounding. I mean, just to follow a question maybe to that, is that, was that only be the, so to say, success, or is that only be, should be attributed to the CCP as such, or didn't we have a wide range of actors, I mean, small and medium enterprises, the people, also their dynamics, local dynamics. Is that fair from the CCP point of view to really claim all this success, so to say? Great question. Um, right, so we know that a lot of, of China's uh, enormous success in manufacturing, right, was about shifting all of this surplus labor um, in agriculture into the manufacturing sector. Um, and that surplus labor was there uh, because of Mao's policy, policies. The de-collectivization freed up all of this labor to travel to uh, the manufacturing centers of, of China. Um, so those were very, very special uh, initial conditions, right? Um, and that's why um, when development economists come to thinking about replicating the Chinese miracle, that's the big stumbling block. So you're absolutely right that, you know, in, in some sense, the mistakes that Mao had made uh, paved the way for uh, the successes of the reform period. So, I mean, that's a weird way of attributing the, the Chinese Communist Party, I suppose. Uh, so that's a very, very good point. I mean, and there's also looking at the wider political elites. Have you witnessed over all of these years, were, were there always support also in line of the social economic policy, really how to take forward this endeavor to bring development and growth and wealth to China? Or have you also witnessed over the years various debates or even you know, dissent when it comes to these quests of development and uh, increase of wealth? Well, yes, there's been several debates. I mean, the Cultural Revolution, for instance, is one where you had... Um, so you had 
a lot of schisms within the party. But I would like to go back to something Frank said, because I think it's absolutely right that these were the two original missions. One was social justice and a socialist world in extension, actually. And the other was China's greatness. And I, I do think that there's a contradiction between them. I wonder whether it's fair to say that the Chinese Communist Party has never thought about that contradiction. I, I do think that if you look at what, what Xi Jinping is trying to do, why is he aiming to build a new ideology, a positive ideology? That's precisely to erase that contradiction, to rewrite the story, to make it look as if the first of these two missions, I think the first of the two is national unity, national strength, and then the second is social justice. Uh, at least that's certainly what, what uh, the CCP is trying to do today, to, to try to, to um, change the meaning of what the second part, what social justice really means, in a sense to, to make the socialism part uh, equivalent of CCP rule. But, but um, yeah, to reiterate my point, I, I think that we have to, I think the CCP thinks a lot about this, that unless they build a clear narrative that, build, that wins the support, not necessarily of the whole population, but wins the support of uh, significant sections of the population, we will find uh, expressions of an understanding of betrayal in the Chinese population that do remember that there are normal that there are originally two sides to this, and even if and we have to agree that poverty alleviation is very impressive, but China is also a very unequal country, and that some of the people I talk to, uh, when you could still do that, when you can still go and talk to Maoists in Beijing as a foreign scholar, um, they do remember that there's been a betrayal of one part of that original formula. Yeah, sure. A quick um, reply. I mean, I'm not going to contradict anything you say and also what Sarah says. But the key thing about the Communist Party is um, that it is totalitarian in a very specific way. And that is that it always uh, sucks up and monopolizes all discussions and all successes and all events and projects them on itself. So it claims credit for all of China, for all Chinese, for all their achievements. It uh, claims credit for all economic success, for all economic growth. And it never ever allows anybody to say, well, this is happening because Chinese are doing it, irrespective of the Communist Party. Uh, so that is totalitarianism in a very specific way, right? You basically uh, monopolize the entire story about China's success and about China's unity. And that has extended massively again over the last two or three years, but also including now the Chinese diaspora. Um, if there's one evil thing that Xi Jinping has been doing, is trying to, again, connect these, that diaspora and, and also include it in the CCP story about itself and about China, which I think is to the detriment of Chinese living outside of China. Um, but it's unfortunately extremely successful, even amongst people that had very strong uh, original Republican uh, sympathies, like uh, Wang Gungwu in Singapore. I mean, he's now basically saying, yeah, the Communist Party, um, it has done a lot of good, and really, it's not really communist, it's just Chinese. Um, and that, I think, is, is baleful, and it is leading, uh, and it obviously says, I've been really led down the garden path. And that's only possible because communism and Chinese have been become one in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party, and they have been able to tell that story and convince a hell of a lot of people of it. Christian, I, to also to bring the people back in again, do you think talking about these two, two goals again, uh, 
Do you think there was a point in time in these 70 years where the Chinese people or a large part of society doubted that the Chinese Communist Party can deliver on that? Was there a point where you think people really resisted or questioned this whole mission of the, the CCP? Yeah, I think um, there have always been groups for, for whom that has been the case. I mean, the, the, the peasants that, for example, I mean, the, the CCP claim to represent the workers and the peasants, but none of these groups really has been represented. And um, especially in the countryside, you could see this, um, at least when I was there, and I was still able to go there, this fatalism where they said, you know, they have these promises and we are supposed to be the vanguard. Well, not the vanguard of the revolution, but the most important um, social group in the revolution. But um, we're just being cheated. Um, we, we just have to pay. Um, we have to pay taxes. We don't receive anything from the state. So this was a group that was certainly um, sort of uh, disillusioned uh, by, by, by what's been going on. The same with the workers, you know. Um, as Sarah said, the workers had... Um, like lots of migrants from the countryside came and worked in, in the factories and they've had to fight to receive their full wages for like the last 10 or 15 years. This has been a constant problem. There have been protests. Most protests taking place in China are about labor conditions and about um, you know, receiving, receiving what, what, what you were promised to receive and it has not abated. It's continuing and um, they're not putting a stop to that. So um, for them, it's, it, it's really difficult. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so I'd say there is a lot of fatalism and disillusion among sectors, especially those who don't um, make that much money. Yeah, I could jump in on private entrepreneurs. Um, I think that's really interesting. So we know that um, under Xi Jinping, this tendency that existed uh, prior to his coming along um, to give emphasis to the state sector and make sure that um, the, the central SOEs, so these are SOEs under the authority of the central government, are big and strong and internationally competitive. This is a sort of longer story, uh, but it's become even more pronounced under Xi Jinping, and we see a larger share of resources uh, flowing to the state sector. Um, the private sector has been uh, pretty vocal at points uh, in expressing dissatisfaction with the state of affairs. So in December or November 2018, uh, Xi Jinping actually held a summit with a bunch of uh, private entrepreneurs in Beijing and said, we're listening, we're worried, you know, we're going to give you some tax, tax cuts and relieve the burden of the slowing growth and make life easier for you. Um, so that's interesting. Um, at the same time, um, the Xi administration has been pretty ruthless in calling to heal uh, the most important private sector players, right? Uh, BAT, so uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Um, these companies are, of course, integral to China's uh, efforts to use digital surveillance uh, to increase uh, social control. Um, and the state has used, or the party rather, uh, has used all forms of kinds of leverage, uh, not only party committees, but um, uh, one assumes sort of uh, backdoor meetings, uh, uh, calling uh, those entrepreneurs uh, big names like Jack Ma, who stepped aside arguably, or there's, there are rumors that uh, he was concerned that he was becoming uh, too big and too popular uh, and was uh, worried himself that he was being seen as a sort of competitor to the party. There's some speculation that that's what um, pushed him to, to step aside. So th this is, all these developments are really interesting, but I think that, you know, we think, well, what are the, what are the alternatives for, for private sector players in China? There's no viable exit strategy for, for most of them. They're, they're stuck in China, um, so they don't have... Uh, there's no alternative to playing with the party at, at the end of the day. I mean, this is, I think this has been one of the main cha changes also when we look at the CCP and the PRC in general. I mean, taking in entrepreneurs also as 
the party to say we also wanted to represent this group of the of the population and not only the peasant and the workers. I mean, the party really pretty much turned or want, wanted to turn into a people's party, right? This was one of, and of course that also came with a prize, cynicism, pragmatism, and something also, corruption, which some of the elites or some of the intellectuals also pointed out, right? That this was the, the communist party, so to say, turned the People's Republic into China into an entrepreneurs or a capitalists uh, Republic of China, right? Question, you yeah, want to chip um, in on that? Something that I, uh, like the thread I lost before, I'm, I, I have it back now. Uh, I think there was um, a, a key turning point in 2012 when um, I think a, a, a good part of the population sort of perceived the Communist Party as a boring machine, you know, with uh, uh, Hu Jintao at the helm, uh, very technocratic um, decisions took a very long time and so on. So you had steady improvement, but it, it, it was just, um, for some it was too slow. And then when Bo Xilai, um, um, former uh, party secretary of, of Chongqing, uh, came along with a very different uh, kind of speaking, with a different, very different kind of can-do attitude, you know, we, 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 uh, we can achieve everything, pretty much what we're seeing now as well. I think this was a turning point where maybe, I'm not sure, but where maybe the party started to worry that this sterile, sort of slowly, day-to-day improvement was not flying anymore and that they had to um, become more decisive and put somebody at the front who can sort of um, deliver a more charismatic message. I would like to take the last part uh, of our panel time here to really now look ahead. We've talked a lot about nowadays China, where the CCP and the People's Republic have come from, the major, some of the key turning points. But if we really take the question of our China dispute seriously, can the CCP as as they claim, the sole representative of the people and the PRC can deliver, can they deliver the China dream? And of course, they have set this long-term goal until 2049. So at the 100th uh, anniversary, they want to be really a top superpower, a harmonious society, a modern, modern socialist still nation. Um, Andreas, what do you think are the key factors which will, so to say, decide on whether or not the CCP can deliver and might be still then in place at all? Well, I, th- I think there are several factors to mention. I'll stick to one, and the others can probably... Uh, so, but I, I think, actually, what's going to be crucial to whether the China dream succeeds, not only as a project within China, but as a kind of emerging global econ- uh, ideology, is climate change. I think that's the main issue, because at this point... Something happened in 2012. Today we have China, at least they have an ideology. They have a plan, right? They're moving ahead. They know what they're doing. The West does not know what it's doing. The UK is falling apart. The US might be falling apart. I think slightly better in Germany, but not as forward, not as, forward, not as, as ambitious and optimistic as China, right? And I think that if China's authoritarian system manages to grasp the threat of climate change and show solutions, show that it can be done, that you don't need to involve people. You really just need a paternalist elite at the top and then you can clean up your, your, the environment and you can survive climate change. Then I do think that the political model that China comes with will also be dominant globally. And I think that should be a wake-up call to the Western world. If, if democracy is going to succeed in the 21st century, then it has to show a solution to that. And I think, actually, that's the crucial uh, part that um, 
it looks like China is leading the way right now. Okay, so Christian, you wanted to chip in on that. Yeah, I, I'd like to answer to that. Um, I think the, the, the backside of that is that China now is, is sort of overstretching or overreaching. Um, and that's a very big danger. So um, they started internally by defining one very sort of um, well, clearly find path of what modernity and what development is, and everybody had to follow it. And they're trying now to do that to other countries as well, to saying that, you know, you now also have to subscribe to um, our vision of uh, economic and, and development for, for humanity. And now they're getting pushback from the United States, but from other countries as well, who are saying that, you know, we, we, we can subscribe to that. So this, what you mentioned, this speed and, and this vision is something that also hinders them, I think. So, so the speed in itself hinders them. It goes too fast for people to follow along. Is that what you mean? No, I mean it's um, they want others to not only follow along but be a part of it. But right. they don't want, you know, the United States don't want to be a part of China's development. Right. Terry, you want I'm, to? I'm a little more skeptical. I think about um, China's promise in terms of uh, being a climate leader. Um, so the data from the recent years suggests that 2014 to 2016 emissions were flatlining and they picked up again when the economy started to recover. At, and how did the economy recover? Uh, partly there was a lot of uh, local state investment in coal-fired power plants, right? Um, these are big contradictions. And I think that when I, when I think about, you know, wh where is China heading and are they going to be able to achieve these goals, I think that um, the party at some point is going to have to choose sides, right? They, they can't have their cake and eat it too. Um, that with the efforts to, to green growth, um, there are some sort of small-scale uh, successes there, but um, in places like Hebei, uh, this province that's borne the brunt of um, the industrial shutdowns that have improved Beijing's air, uh, it's all bad, basically. There have been 170,000 private um, enterprises that have been shut, out, shut down in the last two years, and there's very little in the way of a social safety net to catch them, right? And so those uh, local governments are just waiting for signals from Beijing um, that uh, all these environmental targets that are hard written into the evaluation categories that are so important to us, they're not really that important. What matters the most is growth, right? That's what they're, what, that's what they're waiting for. So I think that this growth economy trade-off in China sadly remains still a trade-off. Just a quick rebut to that. Yes, I, uh, just to clarify, I, I think the main difference is that at least the, the CCP recognizes that this is, has to be the future. We have to go to make the green transition, whereas the U.S. has a precedent that doesn't recognize that it's even human-created. But it, it's obviously all in the future. You were asking about what does it take, what's the key factor that will allow the CCP to succeed in its mission. And I think that is the key factor if they actually do it, if they make sure and if they have the technological advances that are great enough to ensure that you can actually transition to a zero emission economy. I mean, you're, you're pointing, all of you have been pointing uh, at that, of course, also when we, when we think about what does it mean for us, uh, in, in what sense is it challenging us, maybe to the better, maybe to the worse, can a top-down leadership, I mean, this also mentioned the party rules over everything, can they, are they better equipped to deliver on policy challenges than, let's say, democratic um, liberal democracy here in the West, which have a much more complex, diverse, so to say, decision-making. Uh, Frank, what is your opinion on that? Is the, uh, is China very, on? very small question, really, yes, okay. <laughs> That's um, why I'm asking you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> carrying the baby here. I think, uh, yes, a system like the Chinese system is obviously uh, better 
suited to certain types of decisions and carrying through these decisions to the bitter end. Uh, that's, I think, undeniably true, but it comes at a tremendous price. Uh, I'm, not saying a, it's, I'm not saying it's a fatal prize, but it is a prize. Uh, and you see that very clearly with uh, our friend Xi Jinping. Uh, and that is that you can be captured by grandiose visions. Um, you, uh, there is no real mechanism that uh, stops people from seeking the extremes or going beyond what is reasonable and beyond what is achievable. And Xi Jinping is such a leader that's also He's produced by the system, and the system produces that kind of, kind of person. It likes that kind of person. Um, so I think the key thing for China is not so much can it achieve its dream, but rather can it achieve to trim the dream to sizable, a sizable proportion, to keep its ambitions reasonable um, and within limits. If these, the dream is indeed what Xi Jinping wants it to be, I think it's unachievable. Um, I think he will be caught up in reality at some point. Um, if, however, he manages to trim his ambitions and make them more reasonable, where China is still a w very wealthy place, is still a great power, is still this and still that, but not to the extent that it can challenge the rest of the world uh, on all fronts, everywhere and ev uh, at every time, then yes, he can achieve it. Um, and the, the reason that you have to trim these ambitions is because there are some clear things that we all know about Chinese society and economy that simply are limiting factors. Uh, the biggest one, in my mind, still is demography. Uh, aging, shrinking of the population, shrinking of the workforce, and so on and so forth. That is an inevitable fact that is happening already, and that by itself is a massive challenge if you have the ambition to be the greatest country in the world. There's also other things, like the transition to another growth model. Um, we know about that. There is the indebtedness of government, the indebtedness of, 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 of enterprises. And you can come up with a whole list, including, yes, the environment and climate change. Um, so it's not so much that there is one thing that limits it, but rather, what is it that would limit the size of the ambition? And that is the key factor. And I mean, if we really assume that Again, Xi Jinping, the CCP, is able to streamline all different kinds of dreams. I mean, we, dreams we have talked a little bit about, of course, the amount of diversity within the Chinese society as such. People might have different opinions how to achieve that. They might have even different dreams, right, about their own personal future, not in regard to climate change, but really how to, you know, in terms of social justice, in terms of political expression, participation even. But my question to, again, you all would be then how far are we here in, in the West, in let's take Europe again, in a position to influence the cause of the PRC? Andreas, do you see? Oh. What, what is the <laughs> I was so hoping that you would <laughs> pick up. Um, is, there, is there anything we can basically do or can we just sit and watch and first analyze? First we now have to switch off all Huawei telephones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, my intuition about that is that there's this idea that if, when the U.S. is turning away from its original values with Donald Trump and China obviously is an authoritarian country, that then you, can, that you should then rely on Europe as the bastion of democratic values and like human rights and so on. And I, I don't really think that will work. I, um, to be honest, I, I don't really see that there's much to do. But, and I don't, but I don't think, certainly, that that kind of moral grandstanding and saying that we, we also have to remember these European values that that's the way ahead, because 
if, if these values are anything, if we, if we want the Chinese along with them, we have to remember that dem- democracy is a universal value. It's not something that's connected to a, a particular culture, but it's something that we can share as a kind of technology for running our societies. It doesn't need, obviously, democracy doesn't need to look like the German system or the American system, but the, very, the, the basic idea of people's rule, unless that's, we, that's considered a universal value, we won't get anywhere. The question again, of course, might be if that's appealing to the Chinese people as as large, it right? Was the in younger 89. generation, yeah, the right. younger generation now, which will also eventually lead and steer uh, the PRC. But really, is there, Sarah, is there anything we can do positively to incentivize, or is the Trump approach the right way to pressure um, the PRC in, into a cause which might might be a bit more benign or more constructive from a global point of view? I think you made this point in something that I read of yours recently, that um, one can budge China on uh, issues, issues where China is, is, is vulnerable and, and requires the outside world, right? So uh, Trump has been very merciless on um, exploiting China's vulnerability in the lack of a strong semiconductor industry, right? Um, and that's a lot of the source of leverage um, in the current um, trade tensions. Um, so, I mean, that's the nastier manifestations of exercising leverage. But, in, you know, given uh, China's uh, increasing position in the world, um, that's a strategy that doesn't necessarily have a wide application. I mean, I think, um, generally speaking, um, this maybe is not going totally in the direction that you, that you uh, intend, but um, I think it's really, really important that in the environment in, in the West, where, and I think this is, uh, Andreas is sort of alluding to this as well, um, where there's a lot of... Um, uh, Sinophobia, I think there's no way, other way to put it, right? That a lot of media coverage about China is extraordinarily negative, um, and none of the good news stories come to light. And I, I find this really uh, worrisome and dangerous. So in, in Germany here, um, I teach in a, a sinology department. Um, student interest is dropping off, and this is happening in all the departments uh, across uh, Germany, and this is in, in no doubt related uh, to, to the news. So China has a real negative image, and there's lots of good reasons for that. Xinjiang re-education camps are, are just one of them. Um, but Given, you know, there's, there's no way around China in uh, 2019, right? Um, and what we need is more China knowledge. Uh, we need uh, more people who speak Chinese, more people who are interested in China, and not simply uh, buying into these uh, very uh, worrisome and simplistic um, um, images of China that we get from the media. And Christian, that's also a topic you care a lot about, right? As, as a China researcher, I mean what we can do or can't do any longer in terms of helping to analyze or understanding China and eventually maybe also bring something to China and, of course, also to Europe. Yeah, in terms of what to bring to China, it's just like when you ask the question, like like Andreas, my, my brain has been sort of trying to um, analyze uh, the implications of, of what you asked. And I was thinking about you now that you know China is – or the people, people – People's Republic of China is turning 70, which for an authoritarian regime now in modern times is considered pretty old. You know, most um, authoritarian regimes collapse earlier, but um, in earlier times this was not the case. Every regime was authoritarian. So where, why, how did this change uh, take place? It was because populations, like if you had, like in case of, sort of top, um, bottom-up revolutions, that people looked for examples. They looked at the United States and other countries and said, you know, we want to live in that system. So basically we have to be people in the system that makes it worth living in, that makes it worth emulating. You know, and that means, first of all, talking about, like our lives talking about something that we have in Europe, social security, for example, um, talking about values, 
but also, and I think that's very important, not being intimidated. For researchers, this is, of course, very difficult because our access to China also depends on what we're saying publicly here, for example. You know? But part of that is um, to talk about Xinjiang, to talk about these issues, and as you know, we've been doing here today, talk about all these sides. I think this is really important. So I wouldn't try to pressure and, and put a lot of pressure on a country that um, has been under pressure for a long time and has become stronger in a, in, in a sense of this pressure, but try to leave, lead by example and sort of get our own, set our own house in order. I think this is a very good point in time. You were all saying, we covered quite a lot. China is a complex country. There's some things we might eventually still be able to to influence, we of course have to widen our views, also become more modest, more self-reflective, uh, also stating what is important to us, but um, of course also paying attention about the internal dynamics within China. But this is, I think, a good point in time to really end this whole evening. And there's room, we will open up space also for more of the other questions over a glass of wine. But I really would like to end this evening with the people. And I have a very short question and please be specific as possible. I know you're academics and experts, but if you have the chance <laughs> as a happy birthday message to the Chinese people to tweet something on Sina Weibo, of course, what would be the one sentence you would tweet to the Chinese people? 70 is the new 40. 70 is the new 40. Thank you. Andreas? Just one sentence. One oh, sentence. Okay. Well, then it will have to be Many nations, one humanity. Frank? Don't always try to be number one. Christian, you have the final say. Um, I would quote a proverb that inspires humility in those who feel sort of proud and um, hope in those who feel they're not proud. And that's, um, this too shall pass. Well, I couldn't have a better sentence to end this evening. Thank you very much. First of all, thank you very much to... The panelists, I think you have done a fantastic job to touch upon everything a little bit, but also to dive deep on a couple of questions. So please join me and give a warm round of applause to our panelists. And finally, and first and foremost, always the last thanks goes to you, our audience. You make it possible for us as Merricks to, to have good feedback, to learn what is important for you as people who care about China. To Please continue to support us. Read our publications, send us feedback, join our events, and please stay on for a glass of wine or water over. There's so many questions to discuss. So thank you very much. Have a good evening. Uh, continue to feedback us to, to stay with us, stay in the conversation, and have a good evening and a good, good week. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.